Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. So to many people around the world, Halloween 2020 will seem like a very different affair due to the unprecedented changes brought about by the COVID-19 scenario. And despite acknowledging the new restrictions, most people will adapt by finding innovative ways to celebrate Halloween in some renewed shape or form. And here in Toronto, Canada, public health authorities in the so-called hotspot regions of Ottawa, Peel and York have advised against door-to-door trick-or-treating and recommend that people consider alternative ways to celebrate and celebrate they will because Halloween, like Christmas, is an event which evokes fond memories of childhood, a sense of free spirit and togetherness. Halloween provides an outlet for individual escape and creativity, something which is greatly needed now more than ever due to the impact of recent global events. The magic of Halloween is truly transformative because it provides a sense of community cohesiveness as well as the perfect opportunity to engage in fun with friends and family alike. The appeal of Halloween is that it's designed to be stress-free and it's a way of spending time outdoors. But more importantly, it's a celebration of joy and an opportunity to transform into whoever or whatever people want to be. And as a roadmap for this episode, first I'll begin with a quick introduction by outlining a short historical perspective of Halloween. And then Navsi will begin her piece on the origins and traditions behind Halloween. So Halloween is a seasonal holiday which effectively mirrors Christmas in terms of its inclination towards a mass consumption model. And to begin with, there's uh, a certain dichotomy present in both events. So in r- Christmas rituals, gifts are exchanged within the family and each is acknowledged with love and personal attention. Whereas in Halloween rituals, strangers provide gifts to masked and anonymous children who threaten to be a menace unless suitably rewarded. So looking at all of this, what accounts for this diverging symbolism? What's the underlying meaning of Halloween? And how has it changed over generations? What do Halloween costumes and iconography represent? And what do contemporary celebrations of this holiday tell us about individual and group behavior? And is there a disturbing deviancy at work in relation to the concept of masks? And if so, how does this deviancy operate from a psychological and social perspective? And in this episode, we endeavor to answer such questions by referencing various related topics on this fascinating subject matter, such as human fear, nightmares and role play, traditional stories, myths, legends and fairy tales, the role of mysticism, magic and masks, and of course, horror movies, performance and drama. 
So as 31st October approaches, many people will mark Halloween with traditional activities such as carving pumpkins, trick-or-treating and fancy dress. And although the rituals of Halloween are observed in countries across the world, it's in North America that the event is observed on an altogether different level due to its status as one of the early major fall holidays. And figures from the National Retail Federation in the United States reveal that despite the COVID scenario, total annual spend in the United States will be $8.05 billion, which is down slightly from 2019 figures of $8.8 billion. And this represents a planned spending of almost $92 per person and an overall participation rate per family of 58% for 2020. And it's also true that horror films from the 1970s and 80s elevated the awareness and social significance of Halloween to new audiences such as teenagers and adults. And these franchises created cinema classics and cult-like following for the main characters such as Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees and Chucky, which added to the drama of Halloween as a seasonal event. And despite being labelled as an Americanized festival of ghosts and ghouls and a day filled with candy, costumes and mischief, the majority of activities associated with this time of year are rooted in European folklore and, le and legend. So at this point, I'll hand over to Navsi, who will provide a detailed account of the main traditions of Halloween. Thank you, Navem. It's generally agreed that the modern day version of Halloween originates from the prehistoric Celtic festival of Samhain held around the end of October. Traditionally, this was the date which marked the transition from autumn to winter. The name means summer's end and the festival marked the close of the harvest season and the coming of winter. It was during this time of year that people believed the boundary between the worlds of living and dead became blurred, and it was when the souls of the dead were said to revisit their ancestral homes. Later, as Christianity superseded the tradition of paganism, various rituals became absorbed into the celebration of All Saints Day, which is held on 1st of November, which was dedicated to honoring all saints and martyrs. November the 2nd then became All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead, and many of the Celtic traditions, um, such as bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costume, mixed with Christian celebrations. As new festivals were formed, they were accepted and even encouraged by local church authorities. All Saints Day later became known as All Hollows, and from this, the night before came was referred to as All Hollows Eve. It's from this term that the name Halloween is derived. It marked the beginning of the broader festival, which was celebrated across Europe in the early Middle Ages. Indeed, some researchers have argued that the Celtic tradition of Samhain was a fertility rite celebrating the harvest and was originally influenced by Egyptian and Babylonian harvest festivals. While other historians believe that Samhain was a pastoral festival that marking the time of bringing livestock back from pastures to their winter stalls. As well as being a seasonal harvest or herding festival, Savin was a Celtic New Year's festival and represented a day of the dead involving Celtic ancestor worship. 
Savin marked the division of the year between the lighter half, summer, and the dark half, which was winter, and the term has come to mean summer's end. The Druids, who were the high priests of the Celtic society, referred to Savin as the Lord of the Dead, and annual sacrifices were made as a mark of reverence, including human sacrifice by the uh, Celts Druid priests. On the night of Sawin, ghosts of the dead emerged and revisited their old homes. Witches and hobgoblins who were considered to be mischievous were reported to roam the earth with their faithful familiar black cats. As a result, fires were lit to scare the ghosts and witches away with their purifying flames. The association with the dead and evil spirits has survived over centuries and hence remains attached to contemporary Halloween celebrations. In prehistoric Britain, despite the influence of Christianity, Savine practices contributed to flourish for centuries because the Christian church realized that it was more effective to try to assimilate pagan traditions rather than oppose them. So now let's uh, take a brief look at some specific traditions related to Halloween, first being jack-o'-lanterns. The practice of carving jack-o'-lanterns is derived from Irish customs and there's Celtic forebears. Irish children were known to hollow up turnips, then carve faces and place light and candles in them. This would then be placed near the doorways or windows to frighten away Jack and other wandering evil spirits. During the 19th century, immigrants to the USA took these traditions with them and soon discovered that pumpkin, a fruit native to America, were far more easier to carve in elaborate faces and shapes and make perfect jack-o'-lanterns. The related folk tale is an interesting story which involves skullduggery and an Irishman named Jack who twice tricked the devil into promising not to take his soul. Jack was cursed to spend the rest of eternity roaming the earth with only a burning coal to light the way. As his punishment for trying to trick the devil, thus creating the first jack-o'-lantern. Trick or treating. Trick-or-treating for, for candy in the United States can trace its origins to the pranks of Irish immigrants who believe that little people came out to do mischief on All Hallows' Eve, which led to a spike in Halloween vandalism during the late 1800s. Similar patterns have also been reported in parts of Canada involving Irish immigration. The modern form of trick or treating has its original or, or has its origins in early medieval customs too. Just before All Souls Day, the poor and, and destitute would go door to door receiving food, which is often bread and pastries, in return for their promise to pray for the household's dead relatives. On All Hallows Eve, they would often ask for gifts and offerings in the mysterious name of Makula, the ancient Celtic boogeyman. It was believed that by giving a gift or a treat, this would bring prosperity to the household. Otherwise, the household would be cursed with famine, sickness, and even death. The leader of the procession was called Lebhan. He would wear a white robe with a horse mask and lead the group as he recited poems or long prayers. Later in uh, Christian times, these practices were encouraged by the church and became known as going a souling, in, in which special soul cakes were solicited. The practice is thought to be to have begun in response to the purgatory, 
to the belief in purgatory where it was thought that a soul lingered in torment unless elevated by prayers and more often money paid to the church. After the Protestant Reformation, a soul souling continued in England. By this time, the Protestant young and poor offered to pray for the people of the house and their loved ones. And instead of purgatory, while Catholics continued the, all the tradition. Later, this practice eventually became the precursor for children in England, England's bearing a penny for the guy during Guy Fawkes night. The third point we're discussing is Halloween and Guy Fawkes Day. So in the 17th century, Guy Fawkes Day added a new component to the development of Halloween. On 5th November 1605, a group of dissident Catholics tried to assassinate the Protestant king, James I of England, in an attempt known as the Gunpowder Plot. The attempt failed, and one of the group, Guy Fawkes, was caught with the explosives beneath the House of Lords, and it was his name that became infamous in relation to the plot. Guy Fawkes Day was celebrated by the Protestants of Britain as a triumph over the popery, and 5th November became known as the occasion for anti-Catholic sermons and the vandalism of Catholic homes and businesses. The night before Guy Fawkes Day, bonfires were lit and unpopular figures such as the Pope were hung in effigy while people drank, feasted, and led of fireworks. Children and the poor would go house to house, often wearing masks, pushing an effigy of Guy Fawkes in a wheelbarrow and begging for money or treats. Now, it brings us to the concept of costumes and dressing up. The tradition of dressing up also became linked to this custom, particularly in Scotland, where it became associated with the superstition known as guising. People wore masks or costumes to avoid being recognized or to pacify the spirits which had crossed into the physical world at this time of year. Masquerading was also evident during all Gaelic celebrations and Savine, where the, the skins of slaughtered animals were worn as a disguise to invoke the spirits of sacred animals. In addition, during Savine celebration, banquet tables were prepared for visiting ghosts, and after the feast, the ghosts were let out of town by costumed villagers. Another aspect is ghost stories. Halloween is among the oldest traditions in the world as it touches on an essential element of the human condition, the relationship between the living and the dead. Every recorded civilization has created some sort of ritual observance focused on what happens to people when they die, whether they go, and how the living should be on, should be honoring those who have passed on. Furthermore, those who had died in the past year and who, for one reason or the other, were unable to move on, would do so at the time and would interact with the living. Countries around the world today celebrate Halloween in one form or other, from Mexico's Day of the Dead to China's Tomb Sweeping Day. Equally, tales of spirits and ghosts returning from the dead to haunt people and places whom they had left behind have, have long featured in various types of folklore. Stories such as these were at the heart of early All Hallows or Savine celebrations and led to many of the superstitions that became customs around the time of year, this time of year. Although many of these stories are not necessarily connected to the Halloween season in Europe, 
the supposed blurred boundaries between life and death at the end of autumn most likely encouraged these beliefs and tales. Even the Catholic Church had its own ghost stories, often emphasizing morality and the need to live a good Christian life. And these may have formed part of the, of the festival of All Souls Day. During the later medieval period, and particularly when the Victorian Gothic movement, tales of ghosts and spirits often became linked to violent events and places. Building on previous examples, such as the fate of Hamlet's father in Shakespeare and the many reports of Anne Boleyn's restless soul after her execution. Another very important aspect of haunted houses. Hollywood films such as John Carpenter's classic Halloween of 1978 and dozens of other horror films during the 1980s added to the ghastly ethos which was prevalent among film audiences during this period. It not only helped to attract big cinema audiences, but also gave rise to video rental industry. Both these factors helped to lay a solid foundation for a growing market in Halloween costume design, masks, wigs, and special effects items. It also highlighted a growing trend in Halloween celebrations towards adult-oriented activities. An interesting concept of bobbing apples. At one time, Bobbing of apples used to be more than just a quaint party game. Although Halloween has come to be closely associated with pumpkins, apples have also played an important role in its history. And there are numerous mentions of Celtic mythology, often connected to the outer world, the other world. The practice of bobbing for apples was once considered to be a form of divination or telling the future performed around Halloween. People would dunk their heads in a vat of water and try to bite into the floating fruit in a quest to figure out their future spouses. Ladies would mark an apple and toss it in the tub and would then be destined to a future life with whoever pulled it out of the water. Coming to the concept of black cats, Black cats have always been associated with the supernatural and hundreds of years during the Middle Ages. Black cats were often portrayed as the, as the familiars of witches, which is likely to be the origin of distrust which accompanied them. In Europe and North America, the Puritans rejected anything associated with the devil and witches. It was also widespread belief in the Middle Ages that witches transformed into black cats to conceal themselves and spy on unsuspecting villagers. So how was Sawin observed as a Celtic tradition? Very little is known of the rituals of ancient Sawin because the church Christianized it and with many as with many pagan festivals. And what information is available comes from Irish monks who recorded pre-Christian history, but also was scathing of pagan rites. However, it seems that the observance included stock up supplies for the winter, slaughtering cattle and disposing of bones in bonfires, which in time came to be known as bonfires. There were community gatherings which involved feasting and drinking, but there was also the awareness of the thin of the thin time of the year and the possibility of otherworldly visitors showing up at the party. The Celts believed that the will between the words of the living and the dead were thinnest at this time, and so the dead could return and walk 
where they had been before. Departed loved ones were expected and welcomed, and the practice of setting out favorite foods for the dead may have originated as early as 2000 years ago. But many other kinds of spirits, uh, some which do not have human form, could also appear elves, fairies, the V folk, and dark energies were just as likely to pay a visit as those one longed to see again for one last time. Furthermore, there was a good chance that the spirit of a person one may have wronged would also make an appearance. In other words, in others to deceive the spirits, people darken their faces with ashes from the bonfires and this subsequent developed into wearing masks. A living person would rec recognize the spirit of a loved one and would then reveal themselves from the mask while remaining safe from the unwanted dark forces. Let's now move towards the modern version of Halloween. When the British came to North America, they brought these traditions with them. The Puritans of New England still observe Guy Fawkes Day on 5th November as a reminder of the moral superiority to Catholics. The rituals of Savin came to the United States less than a century later with the arrival of Irish immigrants due to the potato famine between 1845 to 1849. The Irish contingency were largely Catholic and continued to observe All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day and All Souls' Day. The basic structure of Halloween was now in place with people going from house to house asking for treats in the form of soul cakes and carrying jack-o'-lanterns. By this time, the Irish had traded the turnip for the pumpkin as the lantern of choice because it was much easier to carve. Although Guy Fawkes Day was no longer celebrated in the United States, crucial aspects of it were linked to the Catholic holidays of October, especially vandalism. Only, only now it was indiscriminate. Anyone's home or business could be legitimately vandalized around 31st of October. So now let's look at how the modern standardized version of Halloween came about. In the village of Hiawatha, Kansas, the morning after Halloween in 1912, a woman named Elizabeth Krebs became tired of having her garden town and her entire town vandalized on an annual basis um, by plundering children wearing masks and initially using her own resources, organized a party in um, 1913 for the young people where she hoped they would exhaust themselves to the point where they would have no energy for destruction. However, she underestimated the resolve of the local children to destroy the community and it was still vandalized. So in 1940, though she involved the entire town, she introduced a band, held a costume contest and put on a parade. And finally her plan worked. People of all ages enjoyed a festive rather than disruptive Halloween. News of her success traveled outside of Kansas to other towns and cities which adopted the same course. This firmly established the tradition of Halloween parties which included costume contests, parades, sweet treats accompanied by frightening decorations of ghosts and goblins. So this brings uh, me to the end of my piece. Um, 
uh, we will be coming up to a short break very soon. Uh, stay with us. Uh, where Nav M um, will talk or explore the psychology of fear behind Halloween and why so many people enjoy being frightened. Also, what are the reasons for people to act so out of character on Halloween? We will also delve into the deeper and offer darker concepts behind the mask wearing process and how and see the how how does it lead to the loss of self? Finally, we will analyze the psychology of the mask and the true image of a persona with its multiple identities. Very importantly, and finally, we will consider the more disturbing aspect of the mask, a process called de-individualization, which says that by donning masks and costumes, are we staring into an abyss of deviancy or have the characters become monsters. So a lot of interesting stuff coming up in the next segment. Uh, please stay with us, stay tuned, and we'll see you soon. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Join hosts Navanav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the converse viewpoint, dare to be inquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. So, in the previous piece, Navsi went through some excellent insights into the various traditions of Halloween. And again, this is just a perfect illustration um, which highlights the, the rich history behind the event. So continuing on the same theme, the present day version of Halloween became much more recognizable after the 1950s in the in the early post-war period. And it steadily became much more popular in other countries, especially with uh, a move towards greater commercialization. And although Mrs. Krebs is sometimes cited as the pioneer of modern Halloween, this is strictly speaking not true because she didn't actually implement the practice of going door to door asking for treats. And this tradition was already a few centuries old by this time, by the time she'd actually put on her first event. But the model provided by Mrs. Krebs's original version definitely impacted how people in America celebrate Halloween on an annual basis. However, the change in model from a destructive celebratory party to a distractive celebratory party 
did not catch on immediately, especially at national level. Um, by the 1920s, what we see emerge is uh, a concept called mischief night. And this had become a serious problem, not only in the United States, but also in Canada. And at that point, it was unclear how the practice of destroying people's property on the night of 31st October morphed into going door to door and asking for candy in return for leaving a home or property untouched. But it was the fact remains that this theme or this uh, process had already been established in Canada by 1927. And we know this because there was a newspaper article from Alberta, Canada, featuring a story about children going door to door in this particular fashion. And the article printed the phrase trick or treat for the first time, and it mentioned that children were given candy and the homeowner was left in peace. So this tradition continued in North America throughout the 1930s. And it was only interrupted by World War II due to sugar rationing, which dramatically cut the candy supply and, and then re-emerged in the late 1940s. And today, one of the main reasons for Halloween's ongoing popularity is because it's not associated with any particular religion or tradition, and it's commonly viewed as a secular community holiday, primarily focusing on the young and also young adults as well and it represents a major commercial boost for businesses offering candy and decorations and various types of accessories as well as the entertainment industry which releases films tv specials and books on paranormal themes at this particular time of year so now we can take a look at the central themes offered by the modern version of halloween and for many modern day neo-pagans in the holiday continues to be observed as closely as possible to its ancient traditions. We see that the central theme of Samhain was always about transformation. The year turned from a phase of light to dark, the dead crossed over into the land of the living or moved on to the other side. People disguised themselves as, a, 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 as other entities and feasting and celebrations still continue to this day. And we also see that wood still goes up in flames in the form of bonfires. Fundamentally, though, transformation is still central to the observance of Halloween. The mask and costume transforms the wearer from their mundane life to another persona. And for one night, an individual becomes a superhero or an undead creature such as a vampire or a zombie. And the masks of Halloween and the present day traditions explore the most basic aspects of the human condition and the ancient observance of Samhain. The costumes that people wear represent hope and fear, similar to the way it was practiced centuries ago. And also the way that people wore their masks, it was done to deter un unwelcome spirits and experiences while anticipating joyful reunions with loved ones. And at its most basic level, Halloween is or can be a triumph of hope over fear. And this is mo most likely what it meant to the ancient Celts at Samhain thousands of years ago. And it's the underlying concepts behind masks and costume which we'll now explore in greater de detail in the, in the upcoming sections. Because 
many of the costumes are associated with the universal fear of death and, and the unknown which is overcome for one particular night as one adopts an opposite persona. And we'll explore the concept of personas in more detail because they're crucial in understanding the inner meanings of Halloween. So let's start with the psychological aspect of Halloween. The historical precedents of Halloween, which were reviewed by Navsi earlier, explain the icons and historical vestiges of the holiday, but they still don't explain why it continues to be a popular North American holiday, despite its lack of clear meanings to most participants. And one of the most significant issues is why people enjoy being frightened. What is it about this particular event and this time of year that people enjoy so much? And certain answers offer partial explanations, for example, the morbid nature <clears throat> excuse me, of the experience or the creepy factor. There are other relevant factors which include the very nature of Sarween, marking the official end of summer, shorter daylight hours, colder nights, etc. Halloween also represents the last event before the onset of winter and a final opportunity to enjoy the outdoor weather in the company of friends and large social circles. And these are all plausible explanations, but to examine why people enjoy Halloween at this time of year, a useful starting point is to ask why people enjoy being frightened. And we know that people enjoy being frightened for various biological and physiological reasons. Fear is the body's emotional response to a perceived threat or a dangerous situation, commonly referred to as fight or flight reaction. And in response to acute stress, the body's nervous system is activated due to the sudden release of hormones which stimulate the adrenal glands to release adrenaline. And the result is an increase in heart rate, blood pressure and breathing rate. And this biochemical response is also replicated when individuals watch horror movies or play scary games or they go on ghost walks or even enter a haunted house. The thrill arises from experiencing this fight or flight response, knowing that we're not actually in any danger. The excitement and rush of hormones can be experienced from the comfort of one's own home or in a protected social environment. And researchers have shown that certain people purposely seek fearful situations for the novelty and excitement factor. These individuals are referred to as sensation seeking because they actively seek a variety of novel, complex and intense experiences and they show a willingness to take physical, social and financial risks in such pursuits. Take, for example, thrill seekers at amusement parks who are naturally inclined to explore the fastest and most dangerous rides in order to satiate their adrenaline rush. And high sensation seekers will interpret the experience of fear and risk positively, whereas low sensation seekers tend to view these emotions as unpleasant. And this also helps to explain why when watching a horror movie, some people will be riveted to the screen while others will cover their eyes and grab the nearest cushion. So Halloween creates an opportunity to safely explore our fear through social bonding. And researchers have shown that people attracted to the horror dimension of Halloween will have higher than average needs for social and emotional stimulation. By sharing the reactions of other people, high sensation seekers will enhance their own enjoyment level during the fear experience. 
And in addition, Halloween allows individuals to safely explore their fear range and violate those social norms for one night of the year. And we also see that by putting on a mask and inhabiting a character, people remove their closest inhibitions to embrace and explore their innermost fears. So let's now turn our attention to this concept that we've brought up briefly, which is the influence of fear and death. When people buy their favorite Halloween costumes, they do so to induce fear in others. And we immediately see a dichotomy emerge here because what they're actually doing is acquiring characteristics which are both familiar and unfamiliar to them. The popularity of these characters lies in their grotesque features, which at the same time offer an uncanny attraction. So these characters have human qualities yet possess some striking difference which repels us. They create a blurred sense of reality between the living and the dead, between animate and inanimate, something near yet so far. And people's fascination with fear allows them to marvel at the horror which exists in a supernatural being because it represents a composite or fusion figure. And the attraction of these beings initiates our innermost fears due to the innate presence of self and identity. However, we know that supernatural beings violate social and human norms, giving rise to stress and revulsion. And fear is rooted in one's own sense of mortality. And just as language has allowed us to express our identity by differentiating between self and other, it also allows us to accept death as an inevitable outcome. So therefore, we see that on Halloween night, individuals are able to transcend their own fear of death, which brings them closer to the mysterious and the abhorrent concepts which they're trying to pursue. So from this discussion, we can now ask, what's in a mask? Is there something much deeper at work? The concept of a mask is much more complex than simply donning a costume accessory. A mask is able to hide the darker side of a person because it allows an individual to remove responsibility for their actions. For example, just look at the Joker character from the Batman Marvel comics. And this is a perfect illustration. The mask allows an individual to be more vocal, expressive and less self-conscious of their inhibitions. Another example is Peter Parker, the mild-mannered photojournalist who turns into a web-spinning crime fighter once he wears his spider mask. And similarly, Halloween is unique because it's one day in the year where people can leave their true identities at home and wear an entirely new mask which they don't experience in their daily lives. And to explore this concept further in terms of the effect Halloween has on individuals and the relationship between individual behavior is first necessary to understand the psychology of identities. So let's look firstly at the mask and its multiple identities. The issue of multiple identities describes a situation when an individual behaves differently from certain norms that they've previously created. Sometimes individuals will feel obliged to act in a certain way, which is somehow contrary to their natural way of doing things than their friends, and even more so from work colleagues. And psychologists have argued that we become different people depending on the particular context, more aggressive when exercising at the gym, more conservative in work mode, more carefree when enjoying social activities, and more reflective in spare time. <laughs> 
So in essence, individuals would don a unique identity when faced with different scenarios, such as becoming a different personality or using different vocabulary or adopting alternative preferences, changing their normal behavior depends on the situation. And the next question to put forward is, what is the relationship between psychology and the mask? And here we look to eminent psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung. He put forward a theory of identity which helps explain why individuals sometimes change their persona. And sometimes there are odds with what it actually resents. And he suggested that the psyche is made up of three distinct elements. Firstly, the ego, the personal unconscious, the collective unconscious. And he also introduced the concept of archetype, which are various aspects of our personality that make up the psyche. Archetypes are inherent models of behavior. They're behavior and personalities which influence their individual personalities. And Jung suggested that the archetypes were universal patterns of knowledge which we inherit from our ancestors. And these in turn influence instinctive levels of behavior. And according to Jung, the four archetypes are the shadow, the anima, the self and the persona. So looking at all of this, how do we make sense of it all? How does it relate to today's topic? Well, the main relevance to our discussion on Halloween and identity is the persona, which is the face that we present to the world or our individual mask and its role to protect the ego or our conscious mind. And this mask can change according to variations from society, friends, family, work, etc. And as children develop, the persona can, can become damaged if too much stress is experienced, which leads to trauma. But most children do recover from such experience and they actually contribute positively to society. But in other cases where personas have been damaged, it's the role of psychologists to work with such individuals. For instance, when the persona or the mask becomes static and an individual's problems and issues come to the surface, they're unable to move forward in their life. And the end result is an inability to adapt to social situations and therefore handle reality around them. So let's take a look at a few examples where different mask face have been used to mirror the various personas. Firstly, we see the mask in ritual. And we know that humans have been dressing up, applying face paint, makeup, and wearing masks as part of rituals since early tribal societies. Aboriginal people from all over the world have maintained shamanic rituals for centuries to communicate important messages through spiritual and emotional channels, thereby transcending the ordinary which has helped to define their unique history. And secondly, we see the mask in drama. Masks have been used in plays and drama for thousands of years. The ancient Greeks and Romans used them to help the actor define their role or change character and the audience would be able to differentiate between characters. And they're a powerful tool which can transform any given dramatic situation and have been used to great effect in modern movie genres also, such as horror. And thirdly, we, we see the, uh, how masks have been used in protests. Masks are often used by demonstrators in marches who don't want to be recognized by law enforcement authorities. 
So in recent years, mass protests from the, around the world have used the so-called Guy Fawkes mask, protesting against recession, poverty and globalization. And its use has become widespread among international groups protesting against excessive power wielded by politicians, banks and financial institutions. And fourthly, we see the relationship between masks and the fool. Historically, a court jester or fool was an entertainer during the medieval period and a member of a high standing household, such as a nobleman or monarch. And they were employed to primarily to entertain guests by delivering comedy, riddles and wisdom disguised in colorful language. So given that costume masks have a variety of uses in explaining the persona, why then do people act so out of character on Halloween? And in the earlier section, we mentioned two examples of this in which Halloween has been used as a legitimate launchpad for acts of social or politically motivated violence. The first was anti-Catholic vandalism during Guy Fawkes Day, and the second was Mischief Night in 1920s America and Canada. And in modern society, it's much more common for individuals to do things on Halloween that they would otherwise never do. In other words, we see evidence of what's known as out-of-character behavior. And this involves flagrant abuse of the unwritten social contract, where norms are set aside by people acting out in a wild or juvenile manner. And from a psychological perspective, individuals often feel compelled to act differently than usual on Halloween due to the presence of anonymity. And as far back as 1971, researchers found that children embarking on a night of trick-or-treat were emboldened by their concealed identity, especially where they were involved with a group of costume troublemakers and were more likely to steal candy and money while trick-or-treating. And quite simply, the illusion of anonymity provided sufficient motivation to act less morally. So does this mean that the mask offers the power of anonymity? Well, we know that an anonymity is an important part of a concept called de-individuation. And this is a phenomenon in which people engage in seemingly impulsive, deviant and sometimes violent acts in situations where they believe they cannot be personally identified, such as groups, crowds or on the Internet. And as the name implies, de-individuation refers to the temporary loss of one sense of personal identity. And there's also an equivalent decrease in one sense of personal responsibility making it easier to commit questionable or even illegal acts, as seen during riots and other examples involving mob mentality. And wearing a costume can certainly heighten de-individuation, especially when others are also dressed up. And research in this field has shown that people can easily get caught up in the roles that they find themselves in and commit acts they would not normally do by taking on some of the traits associated with that character. And another crucial point to remember is that each individual will accommodate a dark, primitive side of their personality. And Jung referred to this as the shadow. Taking together all of the psychological phenomena described above appear to make Halloween the perfect night for someone to release his or her dark side, whatever form that may take. And Jung argued that those who acknowledged the shadowy side of themselves had a better chance of incorporating it in their personality, leading to a, a balanced and reasonable outcome rather than let it rule their actions from the depths of their 
unconscious. So let's start wrapping up with a final analysis. Against this background of de-individuation, a significant issue emerges from the discussion of deviant or malevolent behavior, which, uh, whether it's the form of human violence or acting out. And given the existence of such behavior, we can place it within three separate contexts. Firstly, the psychology of deviancy. So let's take a look at some of the useful examples which will illustrate this. So in William Golding's classic novel, The Lord of the Flies, written in 1962, we can see the psychology of de-individuation at work in the transformation of decent British choir boys into murderous beasts. The central argument describes how a change in an individual's outward appearance, in this case, painting one's face, leads to a chain reaction in psychological outlook and a descent into barbarism. The painted faces liberate the boys by allowing them to engage in savage behavior without feeling self-conscious or guilty about their actions. And one of the main characters, Jack, uses red and white clay along with charcoal to paint his face. And this is a crucial point because the face paint allows Jack to release his bestial self without experiencing any form of shame. The other boys followed suit and descend further into savagery. And we see that face paint makes a mask which turns and covers the identity of the person wearing it. And the second point is de where de-individuation can be placed in the context of the socialization of deviancy. And the second example we in introduce to illustrate acts of deviancy is through socialization processes, which are sanctioned by ruling governments. And the, during the 1930s, the Nazi government in Germany conditioned and in indoctrinated its youth to hate Jews with the sole purpose of making them the hated enemy of the new German nation. And the indoctrination of Germany's youth was a high priority of the Nazi party after it came to power in 1933. And we saw specialized education programs were developed to teach German youth about the supremacy of the Aryan race and represented uh, the opposite uh, as despised, ugly and characterized Jews. And finally, de-individuation can be placed in the context of creating a faceless deviancy. The, the third example we introduced to illustrate acts of deviancy is the manner in which nation states prepare their young men and women to engage in wars in which they must kill other young people. And this difficult transformation is accomplished by a special form of cognitive conditioning. Images of the enemy are created through national propaganda to prepare young people to kill those who've been labeled as the enemy. And using this process, archetypes of the enemy are created by governments using careful propaganda against those judged to be the outsiders or enemies. And by creating an evil enemy in the minds of righteous young people, the enemy becomes an abstract concept, a faceless aggressor, a dehumanized entity, a savage barbarian, and finally nothing more than just an image of death. And when we look closely at the, the above examples, it's easy to argue that as rational individuals, we would never succumb to this type of behavior, especially when we look at the horrifying examples of indoctrination in Nazi Germany. 
So were those children from the 1930s any different from today's generation? And we can illustrate this by recent examples of de-individuation. In 2008, a 17-year-old man jumped from the top of a car park in England after 300 or so people chanted for him to, to jump. And some took photos and recorded videos before, during and after. Once the crowd finally dispersed, the taunters walked away, wondering what had actually overcome them. The other onlookers vented their disgust on social media. And police and firefighters are well aware of this tendency for individuals to coalesce as part of a group. So in terms of final comments, when a person de-individuates with a non-destructive group, the benefits can be positive and may lead to a sense of belonging and improved social bonds. But equally, de-individuation can also contribute to the highly destructive group behavior, such as political oppression, mass violence, riots, and bullying. And as shown by the incited crowd example, anyone is susceptible to de-individuation. And when we project this discussion to the current scenario of lockdowns, social distancing, and mandatory mask orders, what, what can we actually uncover? We see that everyone is wearing masks at this time everywhere uh, in various countries. And can we honestly say that we are any different from the baying mob present at the suicide scene? How many of us can honestly say that we looked innocently at a person whose mask has slipped down a few centimeters from the bridge of their nose? How many of us reacted with incredulity when we see another person not wearing a mask as they browse through the shelves of a supermarket or a retail store? Or perhaps when someone has not followed the arrowed markings dictating a one-way traffic flow in a shopping aisle? Has the process of compulsory mask wearing de-individuated societies across the globe? And if this this is true, which mask are we actually wearing today in this environment? Is it a surgical mask or have we adopted a more sinister persona, a first step to bringing, bringing society out of its individuality? And that's all we have time for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening and you can contact us by going online at www gmc-radio.com and if there are any issues you'd like to discuss with us, please contact us uh, with your feedback at gmc-radio.com. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.